All right, let's get into the Word this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open them with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. This morning, we're going to give our attention to verses 42 through 47. We come to the end of Mark 15 as we come close to the end of our study in Mark's Gospel. Last Sunday, we looked at the death of Christ on the cross. And this morning, we're looking at the burial of Christ. The burial of Christ. Mark 15, verses 42 through 47. If you have your Bibles open, you can follow along as I read. Hear God's word this morning. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, we give our thanks to you now for this, your holy word. And Father, we pray today that your word would go forth and not return void. May you use it today to accomplish your good and eternal purposes in our lives. Father, we pray today, Lord, for the help of your spirit to hear your word, to apply it, to live it out. And Father, I pray today, Lord, that you would give us eyes that we may see, ears that we may hear, and hearts that would be soft to believe and obey. For we ask all of this today in Jesus' name, amen. I imagine this morning that across the room we could all give testimony of our experiences of the death of those that we love. For those who are close to us, we understand the grief and the loss that comes with such an occasion. We also recognize that in the case of immediate family, when we lose a loved one, maybe a spouse, a parent, maybe even a child, we know that while even though we're overcome with grief at the loss, there's still work that must be done. Preparations have to be undertaken. Funeral services have to be planned. Burial plans must also be put in place. There are many important decisions that need to be finalized. We know, having walked through such occasions, that these are incredibly busy and taxing times upon loved ones. Well, as we come to the end of Mark 15, our text today records for us this time of preparation in regards to the burial of Jesus. Those who loved him must now make preparations for his body. While our instances involving a death and funeral and burial many times cover the span of a few days as we put these things into place, the preparations involving the burial of Christ happen and must happen in a matter of just a few hours. We saw last Sunday that Jesus died at approximately 3 p.m. on Good Friday. The Jewish Sabbath, which would begin at sundown, just a, a few hours from then at 6 p.m., 
meant that no work could then be performed. Jewish custom, Jewish law would forbid it. So any preparations for the burial of Jesus needed to take place very urgently. (coughs) The religious leaders knew and understood this. We read in John's Gospel, John chapter 19, that they approached Pilate, that because it was the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, that they didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross or any work to be done in handling the bodies on the Sabbath day. So they went to Pilate and they made what to us seems like a strange request, that the legs of those being crucified that day might be broken so that they could be taken away. We read about that in John's Gospel. The Roman soldiers uh, would carry out that request at Pilate's command, and as they came to those being crucified, the two malefactors on each side of Christ, the Bible tells us that they broke their legs. And the purpose and the reasoning behind that is that it was a way uh, to expedite the death of those being crucified. I'm not here this morning for us to, uh, to remind ourselves of the gruesome details regarding crucifixion, but just remind us that crucifixion was an event that for many lasted a day, perhaps even into two days. But by breaking the legs, this time was cut drastically because when the legs were broken, it prohibited the one being crucified from drawing any further breaths. And the death then would come not from blood loss or from any other aspect of the crucifixion, but from asphyxiation. They could no longer push up their bodies, expand their lungs, and take breath in. So it would lead ultimately to their suffocation on the cross in a rather short manner. So we hear the Jewish leaders making this request regarding those being crucified. Uh, there's irony here for me. There's irony because they are trying to follow the laws that God has put in place regarding work on the Sabbath, but yet just hours before they had wrongly tried and condemned to death Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's ironic that they would go to such extents to uphold their self-righteousness when killing, crucifying the king of all righteousness. Ultimately, as we read in Scripture, the legs of Jesus on that occasion were not broken because as the Roman soldiers came to his cross, they knew as expert executioners, that Jesus had already died. We read that last Sunday in Mark 15. That Jesus, with a a cry of victory, proclaimed, it is finished, and then laid his life down for our sins. So rather than breaking his legs, they thrust a spear into his side. And when that took place, the biblical writers tell us that blood and water flowed out, a clear indication that Jesus was clearly dead. But as we come to this text this morning, with this haste and wanting to bury the body of Christ, why this emphasis? I mean, it seems kind of strange to us. Why this emphasis on the burial of Jesus? We know that the gospel, what we believe in regarding the good news of Jesus Christ, stands upon two important uh, pillars. His death, which we looked at last Sunday in Mark 15, And his resurrection, which Lord willing we'll look at next Sunday when we come to to Mark 16. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. These are the ultimate truths of the gospel. But it's amazing how the biblical writers speak also of his burial. 
Paul does this as he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, where he reminds them of things of first importance, things of, of gospel importance, where he speaks about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. But he, he says it this way, I delivered unto you those things which are of first importance, which you have also believed, that Jesus Christ died and was buried. Paul thought it important to relay that to us. And then immediately after that, and that he was raised on the third day, that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus was raised. So as Paul communicates the gospel, the burial of Christ finds inclusion. We find it here in the Gospel of Mark. We find it in the three other Gospel writers as well. But why? Well, I think the short answer is that the burial of Christ is what gives confirmation to us of both his death and his resurrection. The burial of Christ is of importance to our faith because it confirms to us that, yes, Jesus did die. We'll come to this uh, in a few moments as we continue through the text this morning. Uh, but let me just start by saying that you don't bury people who are alive. Or at least you shouldn't bury people who are alive. The common consensus is, is that Jesus is buried. Jesus is dead. Jesus died on the cross. And likewise, there can be no resurrection if there has not first been a death. There can be no raising if there has not first been a lowering into a tomb, if you will. So the burial of Christ serves as the bridge to bring us between these two gospel pillars of his death and his resurrection. It's why we find it here in Mark 15. And as we walk through these verses this morning, I simply want to share with you three observations, three observations surrounding the burial of Christ. And as we look at these, we'll make some applications as well. Three observations in connection with the burial of Christ. Number one, verses 42 through 43, we need to see this bold disciple. This bold disciple. Mark begins in verse 42 by recounting for us the details of the afternoon and the coming of the Sabbath. It's a reminder that work can't be done, so things are unfolding rapidly. In verse 43, he introduces us to a gentleman named Joseph of Arimathea. Scholars aren't exactly sure where Arimathea was located, where that city could be found, but we do have a pretty good confidence that it was in Judea. And he goes on and he tells us that this Joseph of Arimathea, that we don't know a lot about, but we do know that he was a respected member of the council. Now, we read that carefully that's kind of shocking or at least it should be shocking to us that this gentleman joseph of arimathea was a respected member of the council what council the sanhedrin council the sanhedrin council that literally just hours before had condemned jesus christ to death that had trumped up charges brought in false witnesses and brought him to Pilate, asking for his crucifixion. Joseph of Arimathea is counted among the Sanhedrin. That's kind of surprising and shocking to us, because now we see this member of the Sanhedrin acting in a way that seems contrary to actions that have already unfolded. He's now lovingly caring for the body of Christ. He's no longer seeking affliction, as we might presume. But instead, he's adoring and adorning this body. 
Mark continues on and he tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a man who was himself looking for the kingdom of God. He was a respected man. He was a righteous man looking for the kingdom of God. This is the same language that's used in the Gospels of Simeon. You remember Simeon early in the, uh, the days of Jesus upon the earth while he was still a child, his parents, Mary and Joseph, brought him to the temple to be dedicated. There they encountered Simeon and Anna. And Simeon held that child in his hands and said, I've seen the consolation of Israel. He gives us that song, the Dementis in the Latin, uh, that his servant can now depart in peace. Blessed be the Lord for what he has done in this child. Well, the gospel writers tell us that that Simeon was a, a man looking for the kingdom of God. So was Joseph of Arimathea, a respected man, a righteous man. The other gospel writers fill in some of the details about him as well, although it's not much. We're told that he is a rich man. We can glean that from our passage today and the fact that he has this tomb that Jesus will be laid in, that he buys a linen shroud to wrap the body with. But perhaps one of the most interesting things we learn about Joseph of Arimathea comes from the Gospel of John. John, in his Gospel, detailing this account, speaking of Joseph of Arimathea, tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus. John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus. Now you say, wait a second, I thought he was a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was. And Luke helps us understand this, where John says he's a disciple. Luke says he's a, uh, uh, Mark says he's a member of the council. Luke sheds some light on this by telling us that he was a member of the council. However, Luke 23, 51, he did not consent to the decision of the council and the action they took against Jesus. He was not, many scholars believe, present on that evening, that early morning, when they tried Jesus among the Sanhedrin, condemning him to death for blasphemy. John tells us he's a disciple, but John adds to that. He's a secret disciple. He was secret in his devotion of Christ for fear of the Jews, John says. This is who comes and takes courage, Mark tells us, and goes before Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Now, he went before Pilate because as the governing authority, the Roman representative there, the criminal had been crucified, the body belonged to the state, if you will. And Romans cared very little for the bodies of those that were crucified. They had no desire to treat them with honor or dignity in any way, shape, form, or fashion. In fact, it was their custom to simply leave them hanging on a cross. Let the wild dogs coming by and the birds that simply might land there deal with whatever they could deal with. But Joseph of Arimathea, the secret disciple comes boldly before Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. It's here as we encounter this bold disciple that we learn a few things. Number one, I think in the life of Joseph of Arimathea, we need to recognize that there really are no secret disciples. There's really no such thing as a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, it might have been that Joseph of Arimathea kind of think, kept things on the down low, that, that he wasn't real open about what he believed about Jesus in regards to uh, the gospel and his ministry and what he was preaching and teaching for fear of those that he was on the council with. 
but mark it down for those who have faith and will live by faith, that faith will always become known. It'll always be made public. It is a faith, if it's a true faith, that must be confessed. This is what Paul writes about in Romans 10 regarding the gospel and salvation. That with the heart, man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth, that confession is made. A public declaration must be made known, must be shared in order to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And that happens here for Joseph of Arimathea. In boldness, he's displaying the faith that he has come to possess in Jesus. Now, I'm sure that all of you here this morning, you have great thoughts about Jesus. You would consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus, perhaps. But my question for you is, have you made that known? How is your faith being publicly lived out? How is your profession of Jesus as your Lord and Savior being put into display and on display in your life each and every day? For Joseph of Arimathea, it became public. It became known as he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ to care for it in a manner that would be dignified. Faith of a disciple, the faith of a follower, will always come to the surface. It'll always be known. It'll always be seen. What about yours today? Do people see your faith? Do they see it in the deeds that you do, the works that you undertake? Where are you being bold in your public display for Christ like Joseph of Arimathea? There really are no secret disciples. For those whose lives have been changed by the power of the gospel, it's always lived out, it's always expressed, it's always made known. But there's one other thought about Joseph of Arimathea I would leave with you before we continue on. But as we see this bold disciple, it doesn't just speak to us about a public and a bold faith, but it's a reminder to us about the power of the gospel. That the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for bad people, and the gospel is for good people. If you've been with us as we've studied through Mark's gospel, we've seen time and time again as Jesus makes himself available to those who are down and out, for those who are on the fringes of society, for those who seem to be the worst of the worst, for those who are sick, we might say, with sin. Jesus is there for them. And we've seen time and time again how there's a, an overwhelming response of these individuals toward Jesus in faith. And we rejoice in that and we thank God for that. But at the same time, as we've gone through Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus encounter the religious elite, the righteous and the respected people. And it seems like time and time again that they are rejecting Jesus. In fact, Jesus says that it's those who are sick who are in need of a, of a physician, of a doctor. Those who are well, they don't recognize their need. But here, as we come to the end of Mark's gospel, one of the last displays of transformation that we have coming about through the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't happen in the life of someone who is on the fringe. It doesn't happen in the life of someone uh, who, who is dirty with sin, we might say. But it's a transformation that comes about in the life of a man who is incredibly respected within his community. A man who is good and well thought of. A man who is righteous in all of his ways. And it's a reminder to us that everyone needs the gospel. When we look at ourselves on a horizontal scale in relation to all of humanity, I think we can rightly speak of the good and the bad. There are bad people in many ways in this world. 
evil people in many ways. Incredibly sinful people. And then on that spectrum, they're, they're good people. These are the people who just go about life and they're respected and they love their families and they contribute to society. They pay their bills. They're good people. Exactly what I would say of probably all of you this morning. You are all good people, I believe. All good people. But God doesn't look at us on a horizontal scale. God looks at us on a vertical scale. And on that scale, it is simply a holy God and sinful man. And as such, Paul declares that there is none righteous, no, not one. So whether you're a bad person or a good person, in, in the, the, the measurement of humanity, good or bad, in relation to God, we're all sinners and we all stand in need of the gospel. And the testimony of Joseph of Arimathea is that the gospel of Jesus Christ saves rebels, but also the self-righteous. So maybe you're here today and you're a really good person, but you've never considered that you have a need for Jesus as your Savior. Let the testimony of this bold disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, be a witness to you today that good people still need a Savior, a bold disciple. There's a second observation in the text. I simply use the heading to confirm death. This is verses 44 through 45. Joseph of Arimathea has boldly went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And in verse 44, Mark tells us that Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died again. The means of crucifixion were uh, designed to draw out the suffering of those condemned on its cross, condemned to death. And so Pilate's surprised that Jesus has already died, and so he calls for the centurion, the head Roman soldier, overseeing the crucifixion, and he asks, for verification, whether he was already dead. In verse 45, he learned from the centurion that he was in fact dead, and he grants the corpse to Joseph. In essence, what we have in these two verses is the death certificate of Jesus Christ being issued. Again, if I could use the illustration of us walking through a season of death in our families and with loved ones, we know that going forward in many of the things that we need to handle, one of the most important pieces of information that you can have, one of the most important documents that you can possess is a death certificate. That death certificate is what will unlock many things for you going forward in handling the state and ensuring that benefits uh, can be administered and the such. And that death certificate is required to ensure that there's no fraud that is taking place. Uh, we can understand how there could be abuses made of, of insurance and inheritances, inheritances and all other types of, uh, of things. If death hasn't been certified, if death hasn't been verified, if it's not a known reality that, yes, in fact, we can say unequivocally this individual has passed. Well, that's exactly what you have here with Pilate inquiring of the centurion. They want to know, he wants to know, has Jesus in fact died? And this expert executioner comes and gives the stamp of approval, if you will. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. He is dead. Now, why is this stressed? Well, I think we're given this because it's incredibly important that we do know, in fact, Jesus died. And in fact, there have been many attempts across the history of uh, the church to deny the actual death of Jesus, to 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 look at this death certificate and to do away with it and to say that the death of Jesus was, in fact, nothing but a fraud. Early in the history of the church, there was a, 
a practice known as Gnosticism. And in that practice, there was a, a teaching known as Docetism that taught, in many years this was a struggle within the church, that taught that Jesus only appeared to die on the cross. That he didn't actually face the physical suffering there. That it was just a phantom on the cross. They were kind of having this hallucination. Uh, and Jesus didn't actually feel anything, didn't experience anything. He actually didn't die on the cross. The Muslim faith, they believe this about Jesus. They don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. They don't believe that a prophet would face such a death. And so it just appears they believe that Jesus died or suffered in this way. It didn't actually occur. But we have here the certification of the Roman centurion and Pilate's release of the body to Joseph of Arimathea as a, a declaration that, yes, Jesus did die. He did face death. It was actual, legit. Others throughout the history of the church have put forth what's known as the swoon theory. The swoon theory that Jesus just had a state of unconsciousness on the cross. Now this is kind of baffling to me that this could hold any water whatsoever, but it's actually, it's actually been carried forth and you still hear about it from time to time. That Jesus didn't actually die, but he just kind of succumbed to the blood loss a little bit, the beatings that he endured, entered a state of unconsciousness. And then once they took his body down and placed him in this cool, dark tomb, he was somehow miraculously revived, regained consciousness, and, you know, got out of the tomb and went on about his things. But here, Mark is telling us, the gospel writers are telling us, the inspiration of Scripture through the Holy Spirit is telling us that no, Jesus did die. And that's so important because it's the death of Jesus Christ that brings about the gospel. It's the death of Jesus Christ that secures our salvation. It's the death of Jesus Christ that allows us to put away sin. It's the death of Jesus Christ that triumphs over our enemy. Jesus died. It's a confirmed death. Now before we move on to the final observation in the text, I think a little bit of what we have here and Mark's recording of these details is a contrast given to us. A contrast of Joseph of Arimathea and Pilate. Joseph of Arimathea, this at one time secret disciple of Jesus who has now gone public in his bold request, request for the body of Christ, making known his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And Pilate. Pilate who just hours before had Christ standing before him, interrogating him. Asking him, are you king of the Jews? Asking him, what is truth? Pilate, who had at his disposal the opportunity uh, to release Christ, but instead condemns him to death. Pilate, who had all of his questions and uncertainties regarding who Jesus was, but yet knowing that he was without question an innocent man. Now in this moment, just hours removed, when Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Christ, it is nothing more to Pilate than just a corpse. That's what the Bible says in verse 46 or 45. He granted the corpse, just the remains, just what was left. Sure, you can take it. It's almost a, a simple business transaction for Pilate in this moment, this moment. Just giving the rubber stamp of his approval as the governing authority, yes. Take the body from the state. Do with it what you wish. What a change. Just a few hours prior, it seemed that Pilate, 
had a sensitivity in his conscience regarding the things of Jesus. But now, here we are. After the death of Christ on the cross and the request of Joseph of Arimathea made known to Pilate, and he's seemingly cold and indifferent. Yeah, do with it whatever you will. This is an important reminder for us that there are occasions in our lives when our consciences seem to be sensitive to the leading of God, the moving of God, the direction of God in our lives. Those opportunities where God may be calling and drawing and wooing or directing And in those moments, we need not simply let them pass us by. We need to give unheeded attention. We need to seize that opportunity, that occasion, and and avoid the error of Pilate. I've told you repeatedly, and I still think it holds true, the best time to do business with God is when God is doing business with you. And it seemed in that moment, hours before, that God was working there in the midst of Pilate. Working in that occasion, but Pilate closed that off. He didn't heed the words from his wife regarding Jesus. He didn't go where the truth was taking him. And now in this moment, he's simply cold and indifferent. The Hebrew writer reminds us that today is the day of salvation. Today, today, he gives opportunity. Don't let that pass you by. But then the third observation in the text, a borrowed tomb. A borrowed tomb. Verses 46 and 47. Verse 46, Joseph purchases this linen shroud. He takes Christ down from the cross. John tells us that helping him in this was Nicodemus, that same Nicodemus that we read about in John chapter 3, who came to Jesus by night. Again, I think we're seeing the gospel transformation in the lives of these respected and righteous men, that, that they too needed the gospel John tells us that when Nicodemus came to assist, he brought 75 pounds of ointment and spices with him. Jewish custom did not embalm bodies. Instead, they would wrap them with linen uh, shrouds and linen strips, and they would take the spices and place in that wrapping. And the purpose of it was to simply cover the smell of the decomposition of the body. But because time is short and the window is small here before the Sabbath will begin, All of that can't transpire, so they do what they can. They wrap the body, they place it in the tomb that Joseph had purchased. A new tomb, the gospel writers tell us. A tomb in which no one had ever been previously laid. Again, it was custom in this day that tombs would be uh, used repeatedly. Because there was no embalming, they would place the body in there, wrap it with its spices, and once decomposition had had its full effect, the bones would be left, and then it wasn't uncommon to go in to gather the bones, to place them in something else, and allow somebody else to use the tomb. Kind of strange to us today, but that was the practice back then. But this, we're told, is a new tomb, never before used, purchased by Joseph of Arimathea, cut out of the rock. They place him in there, they roll a stone against the entrance, And in verse 47, Mark tells us again that the ladies who had been there at the cross take note of where Jesus was laid. I'll just give you a few thoughts about this borrowed tomb. And it is a borrowed tomb because, as we know, Jesus won't need it very long. What we see in these last two verses of our text is a prophecy being fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 3. Isaiah prophesied the words of the Lord that his suffering servant would make his tomb in a rich man's tomb. 
This is fulfilled with what Joseph of Arimathea does here. Joseph has no idea that what he is doing as a bold disciple for Christ is fulfilling the, uh, the prophecy that was given hundreds of years prior. And for Joseph of Arimathea, it might have seemed like an incredibly insignificant thing to just say, here, you can use this, go ahead. It's just a tune. Sometimes in our lives, what we seem uh, to think that we can give doesn't amount to much, but we would be amazed what God can do when we place it into his hands. Fulfills the prophecy. Again, it's another reminder as we've seen throughout the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ, that things are unfolding according to God's providential plan. This is not a happenstance. This is not mere circumstance. This is divine action taking place. But we hear in these last words of Jesus being placed into the tomb, of his participation in our suffering. And I think this is another reason why the gospel writers bring us back to this account, to this detail of his burial. Yes, we know that he died. Yes, we know he was crucified. And we think of that, that Jesus has entered into death just as we will also face death. But he goes beyond that. Jesus was placed in a tomb. Jesus experienced the full extent of our suffering and death. When your day of death comes, when my day of death comes, there'll be a tomb, a burial waiting for us. There'll be a separation of body and spirit Jesus has been there. Jesus has gone before us in that. So we have, have great confidence and find great comfort in knowing this, that Jesus went all the way. He's participated in the fullness of our sufferings. But then ultimately, I think where Mark is taking us in mentioning this tomb is that he wants to highlight the place, the place of this tomb. It's the tomb that Joseph had bought a tomb that they laid Jesus in. And it's the tomb where these ladies in verse 47 were at. They were there watching, observing. These same ladies will appear when we get to Mark 16, Lord willing, next Sunday on that first Easter. And they'll come with the spices to properly anoint and deal with the body of Jesus. And many have put forth the theory that Christ actually wasn't raised, but these ladies went to the wrong tomb on Easter Sunday. Seems kind of far-fetched to me when they were at the right tomb on Good Friday. They were there. They knew the place. And in fact, when Mark records for us the accounts of Easter, he tells us that the ladies, very early on the first day of the week, they went to not a tomb, but the tomb. The tomb that Joseph of Arimathea purchased in which the body of Jesus Christ was laid. There was no wrong tomb on Easter Sunday. But the place is more than just the right location. Again, Mark is a little scant in some of his details. It's just his personality. It's his writing style. We've seen that. He moves things along rather quickly. But John, on the other hand, John gives us a lot of, a lot of details with some things. And he does that in regards to the burial of Jesus. He, he fills in some of the things, and he tells us that this tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had purchased, that was carved out of a rock, was actually in a garden. That Jesus Christ was buried in a garden tomb. Now we hear that and we think about that and some of you have maybe been to the Holy Land and you've been to the garden tomb there and you think, boy, this is a pretty nice place. I mean, I guess if you're going to be buried, why not be buried in a beautiful place, a garden place? But there's more to it than that. 
Mark begins his gospel by telling us of the earthly ministry of Jesus. That after his baptism by John in the Jordan and after the Father spoke, announcing that this was his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased, that in Mark 1 verse 12, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And there he was tempted by Satan after fasting for 40 days. Mark even tells us that wild animals were there around Jesus. The Gospel of Mark begins with Jesus in the wilderness. It ends with Jesus buried in the garden. The Gospel of Mark takes us from the, the wilderness to the garden tomb of Jesus. And you may be thinking, well, Wayne, that's kind of nice to know, but why is that so important? Because in that, we have a beautiful picture of what the gospel has done. Jesus was driven into the wilderness because he is, in fact, the true and better Adam. You remember Genesis 3? God has created the Garden of Eden, and he's placed Adam and Eve there, given them all that they need, but told them not to eat of this one tree, which they disobeyed. And as God comes into the garden to judge them, he hands out judgment to the serpent, to the woman, to Adam. And then when all of that is done, the end of Genesis 3, we're told that God drove them out of the garden. God expelled them from the garden of Eden, from his presence. They were exiled from the garden. They were driven into the wilderness. And from Genesis 3 on, the question regarding mankind is simply this. How do we get back to the garden? How do we get back into the presence of God? How do we get back to enjoying fellowship with God? Sin has exiled us. Sin has cast us away into the wilderness, far from God. How do we get back in? Jesus Christ comes. His ministry begins while he is in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. But unlike the first Adam, Jesus Christ remained faithful. Even in the wilderness, even among the wild animals, even as Satan came and tempted him, he remained steadfast. He was the faithful son. And then this faithful son lays his life down on the cross, shedding his blood for sins, becoming our substitute, enduring God's wrath in our place. And then his body is taken down and he's placed in a garden tomb. The gospel of Jesus gets us back to the garden. The ministry, the life, the work of Jesus, it, it brings us out of the wilderness back into the garden, back into a right relationship with God, back into the presence of God that we can enjoy fellowship with him. Mark records for us this burial of Jesus so that we might understand that it's through his life, his death, and his soon-to-be resurrection we're able to enjoy God once again. And I wonder this morning, is that your experience? Do you enjoy a relationship with God? And do you see the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the, the, the way, the access, the door, the entrance into this relationship with God? Jesus. The Apostles' Creed confesses, was crucified, dead, and buried. Buried in this garden tomb as a witness 
to the glories of his gospel. Would you pray with me? In a moment, we'll sing. And today, if you've never placed faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the opportunity is available for you. No secret disciples. Boldly making your faith in Christ known. Not squandering an opportunity in this occasion. Seizing it. As the Holy Spirit leads. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord, for a Savior who was crucified and buried. And Father, we ask that you would let our faith in him be public, that it would be bold, that it would be on display. And Father, we thank you that through what Christ has done, we too can come to the garden. We too can come to a relationship with you. We can enjoy forgiveness of sins and experience reconciliation. And Father, I pray today if there's one here among us that's not known that, has never experienced that, that today, Lord, they would call upon you. Holy Spirit, would you work? Would you take these words and shape our lives by them? May it all be for the glory of you, O Lord. For we ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.